we should start a podcast. Yeah, we've all said it. But when it comes time to make it a reality, we get stuck. Well, here's some good news. With Spreaker, all you need to start a podcast is a microphone and a good idea. Spreaker handles the recording, management, distribution, and monetization of your podcast, allowing you to focus on making a podcast. Whether you're discussing the latest moves in the tech sector or just your dating life, Spreaker gives you tools to make your podcast a hit and professional insights about who is listening and where. And as your podcast dream grows, Spreaker only becomes more useful, letting you upload and schedule multiple episodes at the same time, push to multiple platforms, and customize RSS feeds. But what about making money? With Spreaker, monetization is as easy as checking a few boxes. So next time someone says to you, we should start a podcast, Say yes and let Spreaker handle the rest. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. Good morning and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, you want to be with me? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You can call in and be a part of the program. At the bottom of the hour, someone who's calling in is uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. He'll be joining me uh, in about 30 minutes uh, to talk about, well, the stimulus bill and all the spending and whatnot. There's an election as well and uh, heading up that he wants to talk about. So we will get there. Now, I, I want to begin where I, I hadn't intended to begin, but I think the story now, given what's happening, warrants the beginning. And I, I need to ask you guys to pray. I don't normally like to do prayer lists on this program. But. I need to ask you guys to pray. Please pray for the American press corps because they're going to have to come up with creative ways today to explain away the violence in Portland and Chicago for weeks in Portland. They told us it was relatively peaceful protests with just a few bad actors who were uh, inspired by the federal presence in Portland to agitate, well, the federal presence in Portland is gone, and now even the mayor of Portland, Oregon, says that uh, there are riots, they've burned down a police station, among other things, and then there's the Chicago situation. In Chicago, uh, they had to raise all the bridges. It was like a scene out of Batman Begins. They had to raise all of the bridges to keep people out of downtown Chicago because of riots in the uh, Magnificent Mile section. There was a shooting uh, where someone uh, fired at police. The police fired back, hit the person, did not kill them. It provoked riots in downtown Chicago. The mayor of Chicago, of course, is blasting people for hanging out on the beach uh, and ignoring this. Now, all of this kind of upends the uh, upends the narrative that the media has been feeding people for weeks. And, and again, this this. This gets to my my major critique problem with the media these days. The media is so intent on telling you uh, that everything the president tells you is wrong, that when the president tells you something that is truthful, the media goes into overtime trying to push back against it and tell you that it's not true. You have had to not believe your lying eyes these last few weeks uh, in order to to not believe that there was violence happening in places like Portland, Oregon. It was very clear to all outside observers that the situation there had uh, descended into chaos. 
and that they, the, the left-wing agitators there, many of them weren't actually from Portland. Some of them were, but they were uh, attacking federal authorities, trying to burn down the federal courthouse. And this was an ongoing, repetitive, nightly thing that was happening. And the federal presence is gone now. The president wound down the troops, said he, he would be going. Uh, they would be leaving. They left. And the riots not only continue, but have now escalated. In Chicago, the media does its level best to always ignore violence in Chicago because it's always on the south side and it always tends to be gang related. And so they ignore that. They can't blame Donald Trump or Republicans. So they ignore it. And now we have violence spilled out into the open for the world to see. And the media that has been telling us that there is no violence, that that these are all anomalies, that it's no big deal, that it's mostly peaceful people, they're going to have their work cut out for them today trying to explain how all of this is somehow peaceful. Uh, the, you know, the, this, this transcends in, into the media narrative business where, uh, again, the, the big issue with the media these days is that they want to tell you a story – they don't want to tell you the truth. And when they confront facts that are inconvenient to their narrative, they leave those facts out. And a great example of this was on Reliable Sources with CNN yesterday, Brian Stelter's show. He had on a a, a, a reporter pundit, I forget the person's name, but I want to play this audio for you because it is indicative of the narrative building within the press right now. Cole, first to you, negative partisanship, it kind of explains everything about what's broken in our media environment, because there's all of these media outlets, all these talk radio stars and TV shows that are just constantly attacking, fueling hatred of the other side. Am I right to say this happens on the left and the right, but that it's more severe on the right currently? Yes, I would say it's more severe in the right currently, in part because the right just has a longer tradition of these overtly ideological media outlets, right? Mm. There is this um, sort of habit of attacking Democrats that goes pretty far back. But if you look at like the 1990s and the way that Rush Limbaugh and others sort of sharpened their teeth on Bill Clinton, this has been the way they've built audiences for three decades now. Yeah, I don't want to claim it's new. I just am arguing that it's getting worse. It's getting more severe. Uh, Aaron, your view of this, you know, when you see um, entire media companies essentially exist to tear down Joe Biden, is there an equivalent to that on the left tearing down Trump? Uh, there, there really isn't. And, you know, what I would say, it, it, it's, a, it's really a diet of, of this type of information that a lot of these voters are getting. A lot of the voters that I talk to, I can, uh, you know, when I interview them, I do hear uh, them saying a lot of the talking points that sound very familiar from from some of these shows, which I try to listen to when I'm out on the campaign trail or when I'm yeah. at home, uh, you know, watching TV. You know, you can you can hear these uh, these comments being echoed uh, by, by voters, and you know that this is the diet that they're on. Uh, cons- you know, AM radio, uh, you know, conservative talk, uh, also social media. I mean, the Trump campaign is running a full blown campaign on social media that is completely off the radar for for a lot of a lot of uh, you know regular media. Uh, this is a, this woman without any pushback says there are no media operations that exist to get Donald Trump in the way that right wing media goes after Joe Biden. Really? These people believe that there was no pushback to the point. Does this person not watch MSNBC or most of the coverage at CNN 
or read the New York Times or the Washington Post. That you can have this conversation on CNN among a, on a show called Reliable Sources, and they seem completely ignorant to the fact that there are entire media networks designed to attack President Trump and to tell narrative. And an indicative case of this is what happened in Portland. In Portland, Oregon, major mainstream media outlets said that the protests were peaceful, that the president putting a federal presence in Portland, and by the way, those troops from uh, the Department of Homeland Security were all natives of the area. They weren't bussed in from out of state like you heard in some media outlets. That, that, that federal presence caused the protests to become violent. It emboldened protesters who at night would come out and be violent. That was the narrative of the media, which never sought to answer the question of why, if there were only peaceful protests, why did the president feel the need to surround and protect the federal courthouse? Well, they ignored the fact that the courthouse was being burned down and instead framed it in the narrative as this was the president trying to embolden this to spark violence, to scare people to get reelected. That is the narrative of the media. And it was devoid of context and it was devoid of truth to what was happening. And now we have the situation on the ground in Chicago where it's a very similar situation. You have a, a police shooting. No one was killed. But protests then broke out that turned into riots up and down the street. Black Lives Matters protesters rioting and smashing windows. And somehow this is the problem and the fault of the police and the president, not of the rioters and not of the violent protesters. The media wants to tell you a narrative and they want to leave out facts that might present more light into what is happening because they are afraid that if the facts of the matter come out, it could help the president of the United States. It's all about storytelling. And, you know, story time is fine. Everybody loves story time. And story time can be more captivating. You know, you listen to some songs and some songs are compelling because they tell you a story in the song. They're not just random words thrown together. They actually tell you a story. The problem is that in storytelling, oftentimes, key facts are left out to make the story more compelling. And that's what we have with the media. That's what we have in this very situation. I mean, people are going to wake up today and, and they're going to be shocked to find out that the, the protests were violent because the media has been telling them for weeks that they weren't. You know, the president had some some fun with this, by the way. I don't, this, this actually drew, I mean, consider this point. I'm going to play you the soundbite. What, what I'm about to play you drew national media outrage Friday night. This is the president at a press conference. He was at his golf course. And unmasked members of the president's golf course dared to come in and listen to his press conference. And just in this room, you have dozens of people who are not following the guidelines in New Jersey, which say you should not have. No, more they don't have. It's a political activity. You're wrong on that because it's a political activity. They have exceptions, political activity, and it's also a peaceful protest. So when you have, and, and as you know. So here's a reporter at the president's press conference asking the president about the audacity of having the, these members of his golf club watch his presidential press conference. And the president says, well, it's a peaceful protest. That's not funny, Mr. President. You're not allowed to have any fun here.
Uh, Come on, people, really? It was actually a humorous moment. And and the media is so busy with its narrative telling, it's lost its sense of humor. Have you realized? Uh, So much of the media has lost its sense of humor over the president. The president has a great sense of humor. Whether you like the president or not, inarguably, this president has a great sense of humor. You talk to people who work with the president behind the scenes, and he's always making jokes about stuff. The media has lost its sense of humor. It can't find anything funny anymore. The response from the media should be to laugh off the president's peaceful protest comment. Instead, members of the media over the weekend were blasting the president for that comment, saying it degraded the actual peaceful protests in the country. You mean like the peaceful protests in Portland, Oregon, that were not actually peaceful protests? They've lost their sense of humor. You know, there's an advantage here in in that the president's able to make people laugh. I I, I really do believe that uh, you give the people some laughter, some hope, some optimism, then uh, they may very well vote for you. And and the president could use that to his advantage. Now, unfortunately, with the virus situation, more people, they will get into the polling later. A lot of people concerned about the the virus still, and that is weighing on the president's poll numbers, and that that is weighing on him headed into November. Uh, But the fact that the media itself refuses to have a sense of humor over any of this stuff, I think actually presents an advantage to the president long-term that the media is so humorless these days. People just want a little levity. The president gave it to him, and the media quick to pounce on him. He should continue on this line of thought and, and make the media even more mad when it comes to this sort of stuff and let people laugh at the media. All right, uh, we have trend lines to talk about here briefly. Rand Paul coming up at the bottom of the hour. Uh, trend lines to discuss. This, I'm reading, believe it or not, from the New York Times. Over the past week, there has been an average of 53,772 cases of coronavirus per day, a decrease of 18% from the average two weeks earlier. We are on a clear decline in the nation. In fact, it's not just the nation, uh, Georgia as well, uh, is uh, having a, a good trend lines. Now, let me let, let me tell you uh, that there was a surge in confirmed cases based on, based on the date of report, 4,445. Uh, that's a big headline if you're there this morning, but you need to know something about that number. That number is premised in large part on a backlog of cases. And when you resort to the cases based on date of onset, uh, you actually have a very good trend line down. Uh, let me give you the seven day moving average. The The height of the seven day moving average was July 11th, 4,286 cases in the seven day moving average. And now we are down to 2,562 cases, a, a real visible trend line down. Now, There are some bumps and hurdles along the way, to be fair. But we also have to make uh, adjustments based on the date of onset of illness, not just on the date of report. Because, yes, the headline today uh, from some papers around the state, not all, but some that are largely without reporters these days. uh, We've got uh, Georgia reports more than 3,100 new COVID cases. That was the headline for 
um, for August 9th, yesterday. And the Georgia reports 4,423 new COVID-19 cases in 24 hours. That was the headline for Saturday. And the reality is that we're trending in the right direction, even with those. We are clearly trending. In fact, the New York Times uh, has Georgia almost completely out of the uh, holding stable line and moving us to the decline line. We, We are the next state to move to the decline line the way they sort it. There are only now six states in the nation that have an increasing virus count. Only six states in the nation. Now, you're wondering what those six, six states are. And interestingly enough, the New York Times has started including Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands as their states. Uh, but it is worth noting the actual states where the virus trend lines. Uh, Virginia, Illinois, Hawaii, South Dakota, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Virginia, Illinois, Hawaii, South Dakota, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Those are the only states where the virus is still increasing. Where the cases are mostly the same, the the overwhelming majority of states, but an increasing number of states in in decreasing. Georgia is on the way out. Uh, Tennessee will be on the way out here shortly as well, based on uh, where cases are declining. Oklahoma as well will be into the decline category here momentarily. Um, Texas has moved out of uh, decreasing to stabilizing, but the trend line in Georgia is actually a very, very good trend for the state. And the worst hit area right now is Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta is considered a hot zone. You know, in in the um, in the the Paulding County school where the kid took the photograph that showed all the kids in the hallway. Now they've got nine confirmed cases now out of that high school, they've decided to shut down the high school again and go to virtual learning. We'll get there. We'll we'll get there. Now, uh, let's jump back to the president real quick and and on the polling when it comes to the virus, because there is some interesting data there. Uh, CBS News has polling out in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, Three states, the the three states the president won that put him over the finish line at the Electoral College. All those states right now trending to Joe Biden, uh, more so than to Hillary Clinton in 2016, only by a couple more percentage points. But get get this, get this. The the sole issue for which these states are trending to Joe Biden is the virus. The overwhelming majority of citizens in those states who are voters, likely voters in November, not registered voters, but likely voters, people who have voted in the last two presidential elections. They've trended against the president solely because of his handling of the virus. But by a nine nine out of 10 of them, nine out of 10 of those voters support the president's handling of the economy and prefer his handling of the economy to Joe Biden. Y'all, If the president can move us beyond the virus, the president wins. If the president can move beyond the virus, the president wins. Nine out of 10 of these voters surveyed in these three states support the president's handling of the economy and prefer his handling of the economy to Joe Biden's. But it's the virus weighing him down, which, of course, means the media is going to amplify the virus. Now, we have to be very careful here 
because some people on the right will start engaging in conspiracy theorizing and start making cases that that mislead the president. This is part of the problem with the president right now, frankly, is that he's been getting advice from people who have been telling him it's no big deal. It's going to go away. Don't don't worry about it. And voters want the president to worry about it. Even if you argue the president has limited power, which I do, the voters clearly want the president to care about it in a way that they don't perceive he is right now. And surrounding the president with people who tell him it's no big deal, the media's just out to get you, isn't the way to get the president to show that he cares about the issue. This is a strategic error inside the White House with people around him. If the president comes out and shows leadership on the issue and gets the American people to trust him on the issue, he can then get them to focus on the economy. When it comes to the economy, the president is showing real leadership there. He's entered four executive orders. I'm going to talk to Rand Paul about him when we come up at the the bottom of the hour. But the president has just issued four executive orders to try to keep the economy stabilized when the Democrats are holding the stimulus plan and, and, and the bills in Congress related to the virus hostage. Nancy Pelosi has a grab bag of things she wants, and if she can't get them, she's not going to give the American people any sort of economic relief. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me right now is, well, one of the few advocates, it seems, these days for actual limited government in Washington, D.C. and and fiscal restraint. He's also supporting a a friend of mine who's running for Congress. Uh, Together, we're supporting Matt Gertler up in the 9th Congressional District. That runoff is tomorrow uh, here in Georgia. Uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky joining me. How are you? Very good, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the the ninth real quick. Um, the the runoff is tomorrow. Matt Gertler on the ballot. Uh, I man, I gotta tell you, I, I know you know because you're supporting him, but he's one of the few Republicans I know who, in the state legislature, was willing to be vilified by his own side to just stand up and say, you know, the spinning is stupid. We're not going to do it, and w- would be the lone vote against budgets. And frankly, I think we need more people like that in Congress these days. It's exactly what we need. So many Republicans run for office and they say, oh, President Obama spends too much and borrows too much. I've heard that ad nauseum. Those people ought to apologize. They've made Obama look like a piker with all the spending that they have and they've meted out in Washington. So Republicans are full. I mean, half of our caucus are hypocrites because they say one thing and then they go up there and they become bigger spenders literally than President Obama. So Matt Gertler's a fighter. He fought for fiscal conservatism in Georgia, and I think he'll do it in Washington. And that should be the test for all of this. I mean, we should all be frustrated. You remember it. Do you remember the Republicans all saying they were going to repeal Obamacare? They said, (laughs) give us the House. Give us the Senate. Oh, no, we need the presidency, too. So voters gave their dollars and their votes. We voted to get rid of Obamacare. And guess what? I think it was seven Republican senators changed their vote. They voted to repeal Obamacare under President Obama because they knew it wouldn't happen. And then when I forced them, they didn't want to vote on it, but I forced them to vote on repealing Obamacare again. And five or six of them turned tail and voted with the Democrats. Well, this is a recurring pattern. It seems like the Republicans are only willing to to worry about the debt and the deficit when a Democrat's in the White House. And that concerns me because the amount of trillions we've added and the percentage of the gross domestic product that the, the debt now is. And you've introduced several pieces of legislation, including this Pandemic Pay For Act that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, that actually is mindful of this out-of-control spending. What do we do to stabilize the economy from a federal perspective while also not busting through the budget? 
people have to realize that the budget goes up about, you know, five, six percent a year. It adds up to trillions of dollars in increases every year. And they call that the baseline. The baseline isn't zero increases. The baseline is five or six percent. So if you look at our budget, we spend a little over four trillion, four and a half trillion dollars. We only bring in three and a half trillion. So we have about a trillion dollar deficit every year before you get to this COVID nonsense. And with the COVID bailouts, we are now adding five trillion dollars in one year. So what I've said is, look, you guys think it's an emergency. Maybe it is. And maybe the government caused it. Absolutely. The government caused this emergency through the shutdown. But we could pay for it by simply freezing federal spending for three years. And so I'm going to make these people put their, their money where their mouth is. Free spending for three years. We don't even have to cut spending. Just freeze it at today's level, and you get rid of the increases, and that's about $2 trillion, a little over $2 trillion over the next three years. The, the well, dirty oh, okay, so is, go ahead. Well, I, I, I've, I've been an advocate of this for a number of years of just freezing federal, federal spending. In fact, when you look at the, the balanced budget agreement that Bill Clinton and the Republicans came up with in the late 90s, that they largely balanced the budget in, in part by, by just freezing federal, federal spending. And now we can't even agree to keep sequestration on the books. See, here's what's even worse. In my Republican caucus, I left last week and said I couldn't stand it anymore. I, I left lunch and said, I think I'm in the wrong caucus. This sounds like the progressive Democrat caucus. In my caucus, there were senators arguing, oh, we only want to spend a trillion more. We only want to borrow a trillion more. We borrowed three trillion this year. We want to borrow a trillion more. That's the conservative position, because if we don't borrow more money, the marginal states where the five Republicans might lose their seat, they might lose their seat, and then the Democrats will spend even more. So the argument isn't fiscal conservative anymore. It's the argument is we're less borrowers and spenders than Democrats, but just slightly less. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems to have been the case the last couple of years. Okay, is, let me just ask you more of a, a an ideological question here. Where did the principled commitment to limited government go away? Did, am I one of those naive people who really believed it, but it turns out that all the people in the room really didn't? Maybe. And that was that's what it would lead you to believe. I was around as all these Republicans were campaigning against President Obama, and I was one of them. I said he used too many executive authorities and that he was spending and borrowing too much. We're doing exactly the same things. And I blame both the executive branch and the congressional branch and all Republicans that are voting for it. I mean, there's only a handful of us that are willing to, to cut spending. When the tax bill came up, I voted to cut taxes because I think it's good for the economy. But I also insisted on the vote to cut mandatory spending, which is all of the ongoing government programs, or at least hold the line on them to try to save money. And you know how many Republicans voted with me? Three. So there are four <laughs> of us willing to look at spending while cutting taxes. And then the media still won't give any of us any credit. They just say, oh, you cut taxes, but you won't cut spending. I probably had two dozen, three dozen bills to either freeze or cut spending. I have a penny plan to cut 1%. So there's no one in Washington that's worked harder to cut spending. But I feel alone. I feel like there's very few of us. And now they're all have, they're running around with their head cut off saying, oh, well, government caused this, so we have to bail out people. No, the answer is government needs to open the economy and quit causing this depression instead of just feeding more money. If we do this, if we spend another trillion or two dollars now and keep the economy closed, they'll be back in November, December asking for another two trillion dollars. Right. And I talked to 
one of the senators the other day who's a very successful businessman, and he says he's very, very concerned that the market already knows what's going to happen, and it's baked in that we're going to have a severe, severe market correction when people figure out the emperor has no clothes and that we've destroyed the currency. Yeah, I've I've been wondering about that. In fact, I I hear repeatedly now from friends of mine who actually work on Wall Street, and they say their biggest concern with the the debt relief and bailout is that we've created a moral hazard again, like in 2008, where we've propped up banks and lenders and and institutions that should be going bankrupt right now, uh, clearing out, making way for entrepreneurs to come in with creative destruction, and instead we're propping them up and making it impossible to clear out the dead wood. Look, gold's over $2,000 an ounce now. People are scratching their head and saying, we've got 30% unemployment or 20%, but millions of people out of work, and the stock market's gone up you know, 20% since March. You know, It crashed, and then it came back almost to its pre-crash levels. People are wondering, how can that be with so many people out of work? The way it's happening is Keynesian economics, where you print up money and you give it to people, money that doesn't really exist, it works in the short run because people are fooled and deluded to believing that the money still has value. But eventually it is like the old uh, tale, the moral tale of the emperor has no clothes. Eventually people discover, guess what? The emperor has no clothes, but they discover that the money has lost its value, and then they want to get rid of the money faster and faster. And when that happens, you'll see prices rise. You'll see interest rates rise. If interest rates rise in this country to even 5 or 6%, which is historically not that high, we won't be able to manage the debt. We're going to have a catastrophe, and they have to print money ever faster People say it couldn't happen here. It happens in Zimbabwe, but never will happen here. It can, and it will happen if we keep on this course. Now, let me shift gears away from fiscal policy into education policy, the great debate in the country now on reopening schools. I I know you've got the the Schools Act to really empower parents here and increase some educational options in the time of pandemic. Can you talk about what that is and what your idea is behind it? Basically, the Department of Education sends out money to school districts. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Department of Education. I'd rather it all be state. But right now, they do send out you know, billions of dollars from Washington to school districts, and they do it based on poverty. What I would do is base it on individuals. And so if an individual lives in poverty and they're eligible for Title I, which is these federal monies, I would say it goes to the parents in the form of a voucher, and the parents say they can take it anywhere. Because when you talk about the disaster that is the south side of Chicago or Portland or all these places that have mayhem, the root cause ultimately is a really, really crummy education system where people can barely read and write and generation after generation are left uneducated. So if we want to help people in our forest communities, the best way is to give them the choice to go to either a better public school in another part of town where the wealthy live or those in the suburbs live, let people who live in poverty drive out to the suburbs and go to a good school, or let them go to a, a, a parochial school, a church school, a private school, or let them even homeschool their kids, but let people get out of a school system that is leaving 30%, 40% of the kids unable to read. Uh, there was a, I, I was trying to find this while you were talking, and I, I can't get my hands on it immediately, but there was an incredible thread uh, over the weekend from a teacher uh, who was complaining that with virtual schools and, and parents able to eavesdrop in on the classroom, he's worried he's not going to be able to have the frank conversations about uh, gender and, and sexuality and race <laughs> oh that he could God. have in the classrooms and, and doesn't like <laughs> parents being started. able to eavesdrop in. Well, it, it, it does seem more and more that uh, statistically it seems that we are – 
leaving a, a class of poor people behind in this country and keeping them in poverty because our, our public school system seems more intent on indoctrinating people than actually teaching them the basics to be able to get a good job. I, I frankly think it's child abuse to be talking to seven-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old kids about why Johnny thinks he's a girl. And I'd rather try to understand why Johnny can't do math or can't read and write. And uh, I don't want my kids indoctrinated at school. And that stuff should be illegal. And it's immoral. It's terrible. It's just an awful thing to be introducing any of that stuff into the school system. And people need to rise up and say, look, when two boys win the state track meet in the girls division of track, that's an abomination. And that, that people should not only be embarrassed, they should be outraged by this. And I don't know why people are tolerating this. And it is absolutely crazy. When you fly over, fly over country where I live, I don't meet anybody who believes that boys ought to run in the girls track meet. It's absurd. Right. People can't even fathom who would be for such a thing. And yet the media and the schools have all embraced this and now have taken it upon it as sort of a religious mission to teach us that uh, people aren't really boys or aren't really girls. Um, I think it's an awful thing, and I can't wait till people do rise up. I hope there is a silent majority out there who says they don't want our country to devolve in that madness. I, I I hope so. There there are days I'm more optimistic than others. Um, let, let me ask you about one more piece of legislation that you've introduced uh, recently: the the tax relief for families suffering from government mandated shutdowns act. Uh, if you could talk about that, and and also your your view moving forward in light of the president's four executive orders, whether Congress is actually going to be able to come to terms with anything. Well, my act would be passed by Congress, as most legislation is supposed to be under the Constitution. The president doesn't get to write doesn't get to write legislation, but mine would give tax deductions for expenses. So people are having much more expenses to teach their kids at home because the public schools won't open. So I'd let people have more deductions for computers, curriculum, this and that. And I think it would be a practical way of helping people, but it would have to pass Congress. You know, I've been a defender of President Trump, and I think there are good things. The judiciary has been good. I think the tax cut was good. Regulatory reform was good. But I was an opponent of President Obama's executive orders, and I have also opposed and voted against uh, President Trump's orders, not because I disagree with the intent, but because I, I think it's wrong to let any one person have that power. It is difficult to pass legislation, but it was meant to be so. And we don't want the country ever to be directed because I always imagine what happens if Biden or some of these crazy people consider these socialist slash communists that he's considering for vice president. What if they become president? Do we want them to to govern by executive order? So no separation of powers, all the things that Tea Party talked about, I still believe in. And given the chance to vote uh, against executive orders that exceed the bounds of the presidency, I still will, even though. I'm a fan and a friend of the president. I still tell him, look, we just can't we can't operate this way. So what do we do moving forward? Is Congress going to be able to come to any consensus? I, I think there does seem to be some consensus there that something needs to happen. It's just Nancy Pelosi seems to be unwilling to do anything other than what she ideologically demands. But here's the interesting thing. Looking back, President Obama's views and Congress's views on unemployment after the 2008 crash, are actually relatively conservative compared to what we're doing now. Right. Do you realize President Obama did not add to unemployment? He extended unemployment. And the reason you, won't want, you don't want to do a, do a federal addition to unemployment is it becomes an institutional disincentive to work. So right now, if you make less than $50,000 a year under the current system of $600 added to your weekly check, it makes no sense to work. 
And I talk to restaurants every day who cannot rehire their people because unemployment is paying more than their wages used to be. And this will go on as long as it happens. So the more reasonable thing would have been, one, we shouldn't have closed the economy. But if you're going to close the economy, we could have extended unemployment like we did previously. So it goes on for a longer period of time. It would have cost money, but there wouldn't have been the disincentive. Unemployment insurance has to be only for the bare subsistence because there always has to be a, a significant incentive to go back to work. And right now, the government is perpetuating and institutionalizing unemployment. As long as this goes on, it's not humanitarian. It's actually not good for working people or poor people to do this because what you do is you create dependency, but you create permanent unemployment. So it's a terrible policy. But now that it's in place, anybody wants to take care of it. They say you're not compassionate, but it's not compassionate to bankrupt the country and to destroy the currency. And that's what we're doing. Uh, unfortunately, it is. We've got to leave there. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's good to hear from you. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. Senator Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, also supportive of Matt Gertler, who's on the ballot here in Georgia tomorrow. Rand was one of the first people to come out and endorse Matt Gertler, once more limited government people in Washington, D.C. I was on Instagram yesterday. In fact, let me let me pull this up for you. Uh, so I was on Instagram yesterday. I, Instagram is the one social media thing that I like. And, and I saw this ad for the Motley Fool. Motley Fool stock advisor, 50% off today, limited time, hurry. Uh, y'all, first of all, I don't ever use the Motley Fool. Um, I, there is a growing trend, particularly with millennials right now who are having a hard time uh, getting out of uh, a, a, well, out of debt. You, you know, whether, you, whether you, we can joke about millennials and Gen Z right now, but it is objectively true that a lot of them were coming out of college when the 2008 crisis, financial crisis hit, and now we've got this crisis. And so they're struggling. And at the same time, there's the rise of, for example, the Robinhood app, uh, which I've used, by the way. Uh, I've got an account there, but I noticed that there are a lot of services now out there uh, that are almost risky in the so well they're designed to be risky they, they give you bad financial advice they recommend stocks there's this great trend of celebrities now recommending stocks that they own hoping that you will go buy the stock and drive up the price and notice they're never going to tell you when to sell they're actually strategies you can use to build wealth for the long term as opposed to essentially gambling in the stock market or day trading uh, or buying lottery tickets and I, when I got out of college, loved to throw some money into the stock market at stocks, uh, made some money, lost some money, but it really wasn't a financial plan for my long-term well-being. And I finally became a client of Dynamic Money. Um, they are a fee-only firm. They give you advice on a, how to build wealth. They will manage your 401k for you if they if you want. They have various ways to manage it for, for growth, for stability, for retirement. When you get closer to retirement, they make adjustments. They teach you how to do this. Uh, you don't even you can even rely on them for their advice and have someone else manage your 401k. But they also teach you budgeting and how to pay off debt and wealth building over time and how to set up savings accounts. And they look at your whole health and say, oh, you're getting your car insurance from this company. You could get the same insurance for less with this company. That'll save you hundred dollars. You can put that money in your budget. I mean, they do all sorts of comprehensive things that you yourself don't have time to do. And they do it for a very low fee and they don't have products of their own that they try to sell you so that they're actually making commissions off of you. So they, you know, when they give you advice, for example, 
don't use this car insurance company, use this one instead, save some money. They're not getting a kickback or commission to do that. They're just doing it because it's in your best interest to do it. I can't recommend dynamic money enough. Uh, I have used them now. I've been a client of theirs for two years. They helped my wife and me refinance our house uh, and take equity out of it, showed us how to do that so that we could then pay off some credit card debt so that we can then start building uh, a better stockpile of a savings account. They've been really, really good for us. A lot of people, particularly if you're younger right now, you need someone that you can rely on for straight advice. And you're going to get very straight advice from dynamic money. Uh, I say this as a customer of theirs. I say this is someone who who did those risky things to begin with, uh, making day trades and and playing in the stock market just for the heck of it, trying to make some money out of it, where you're, you're betting against the house essentially even there. Go build a plan for success. Go build a long-term plan for wealth accumulation. Uh, it doesn't matter what age you are. Their fees are – they're designed – you know, most uh, fee-only – um, financial planning firms are for high net worth individuals. Dynamic money actually caters to the middle class. So their fees are very reasonable and they really want to help you. I cannot recommend them enough. I, and I'm serious with that. Uh, so go to dynamicmoney.com. That's their website. Dynamicmoney.com is the website. Uh, talk to them. It doesn't matter where you are in the nation. Talk to dynamicmoney.com. Uh, go there. Uh, get their phone number. Give them a call. Shoot them an email. And let them help you build a plan for wealth and success long term uh, that doesn't involve you buying lottery tickets or trying to day trade and earn a quick buck. Uh, nothing wrong with the hustle, folks, but don't let the hustle bankrupt you in the process. Dynamic Money can help you. They've helped me. They'll help you. Now, when we come back, uh, the president's executive orders, Rand Paul and I discussed these. Uh, some Democrats say that the president has now uh, exceeded the reach of the presidency in doing these things. But some of them were perfectly OK with what Barack Obama was doing. Similarly, in 2009, with his executive orders, uh, I agree with Rand Paul. Congress should be dealing with these things. Congress needs to come up with something. Uh, Congress should not keep paying people six hundred dollars a week in unemployment. They genuinely are disincentivizing people going back to the workforce. We've had some good economic news out there. But a lot of it is disrupted by the fact that so many people don't want to go back to their restaurant job when they're making more money on unemployment. We, we've designed a system to incentivize unemployment, and that long term is not stable. I want to get into that. And some of the machinations that are happening in Georgia, the Paulding County High School that had the picture, they've now got a virus outbreak there. I'll bring you the details when we come back. Why do all pairs of glasses look totally different on the shelf than on your face? Coastal makes it so easy. Browse and virtually try on hundreds of frames without having to leave your couch. You don't even need to turn off your TV. You do you. At Coastal.com, you get prescription glasses starting at $9 with free shipping and 30-day risk-free returns. Plus, they have the most advanced virtual try-on technology you'll find anywhere. Turn your frames into sunglasses by testing out colored lenses, tints, or find what looks good for you. With Coastal, you don't have to spend hours at the store or hundreds of dollars. Go to Coastal.com, pick the frames you want, see how they look on you on your phone, then enter your prescription details and orders. The technology is so simple and so advanced. Uh, you'll be able to stare at your phone, see yourself in the reflection that you see with your camera lens, what the, what the glasses look like on you. Listen, Coastal has over 2,000 frames to choose from and 24-hour customer support. We're talking about Newsweek's America's Best Customer. 
customer service. You'll never waste time or money on an expensive optometrist again. You go to Coastal.com. Now through October 31st, they're offering our listeners the best deal they have going anywhere. 50% off your first pair of glasses at Coastal.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Get free shipping, 30-day risk-free returns, and 50% off at Coastal.com slash Eric. Only until October 31st. It's spelled C-O-A. S-T-A-L dot com, coastal dot com slash Eric. Some restrictions apply. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The full number you want to be a part of the program is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Dan Patrick is reporting uh, that the Big Ten has voted uh, 12 to 2 to cancel college football. Nebraska and Iowa were the only schools that voted to play. Uh, Dan Patrick is saying that the uh, 10 and the Pac-12 are planning on canceling football on Tuesday. They'll make the announcement tomorrow. Uh, that is uh, the, the source there is Dan Patrick. That's what he's saying for, from his sources. Now, question, question. Does anybody care? I, I mean... It's not the SEC or the ACC. So, does anyone actually care? Um, can, can anyone even even name who's in the the Big Ten? <laughs> I kid, I kid. Maybe we should invite Nebraska into the SEC for for Pete's sakes. We we keep offer we we keep extending the SEC into into all these other random teams that are not in the Southeast. Hello, Missouri. Um, just add Nebraska while we're at it. Listen. Um, I, I wonder, I, I, considering that uh, the SEC already consciously made the decision to not play games outside its conference, part of me wonders if the SEC was attempting to, no pun intended here, inoculate itself from the fallout of cancellation of other conferences. And I personally think that if the SEC wants to go it alone, it's the only football that matters. Uh, and so why don't we just have a, a national college football season of just SEC teams? Now, I, I suspect if, if we're really honest here, I suspect we're going to see all the other football um, divisions. Uh, they're, they're all going to follow suit. I'm sure there will be some bullying from the NCAA as well. And I am sure, I, I guarantee you, some NCAA bureaucrat is going to be caught on record saying that this is all to hurt the president. I, I guarantee you that's going to happen. It's going to be amplified by people on the right that this is all about hurting the president, hurting Brian Kemp or the like. Um, they do have real concerns out there, uh, but man, the SEC already decided that they wanted to play conference only. They didn't want to engage with the other conferences. They were just going to have internal SEC games. That's the way football should be played anyway. Who cares about these other conferences? Uh, let's just have the SEC. Let, let's have Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, LSU. I mean, we will Florida. Ugh pains me to have to say that one. I mean, listen, listen, 
I just it, I, I I need to speak to an audience of one right now. You you know, like like Sean Hannity on his radio program occasionally speaks to an audience of one, and everyone knows, or Tucker Carlson does this. Tucker Carlson sometimes speaks. They know they have the president's ear, and they speak to an audience of one. I right now need to speak to an audience of one. And this is very, very important. I know that my audience of one is listening right now. That I have a lot of influence with this one person. And some of you will think I'm talking about you, but this person knows that I am talking to them. And this is very important. With the Big Ten and the Pac-12 thinking of canceling their football season, apparently they're going to announce tomorrow. If the SEC and the ACC follow suit, I mean, the Ivy League, as nobody ever cares about the Ivy League, but they've already done it. There is reason for optimism. There is reason for hope. If the SEC cancels football for the first time in living memory, Tennessee might arguably be able to claim that it's had a winning season. So so take hope, audience of one. You, you, you may be able to get a claim in there for Tennessee this year. If every other team in the SEC has no games and Tennessee has no games, then technically it's tied as the conference champion. I mean, even Vandy will have a claim, but really we're talking about Tennessee here. Tennessee will have a claim to success if all the other SEC teams have to drop out and, and, and they fare just as well. Tennessee can at least claim a tied season in, in football for once. They will not be beaten by Georgia Southern, Georgia State, or Apalachicola County Middle School. They, 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 they won't. They'll, they'll actually be dominant on the field. And I just, I need you to know that, audience of one. I, I just need you to know you can wear your orange tee with pride this year during college football. <laughs> now, my audience of one is is my my operation manager for my website. Unfortunately, a Tennessee fan, and and he's he's already tweeting texting me that uh, Tennessee this year is their year. They're going to be completely undefeated along with every other team that doesn't play. <laughs> all right, all right. We got to move on to other stuff. The president's executive orders. He, he okay. Um, so he's taking four actions, and let me break these down for you as to what they are. Uh, the first one adds four hundred dollars per week in extra unemployment payments through the end of twenty twenty. The next one defers payroll taxes for Americans earning less than $100,000 a year. The third one implements a moratorium on evictions and gives financial assistance to renters. And the fourth one postpones student loan interest and payments through the end of 2020. Those are the four things the president wants to do. Uh, They were things that were being negotiated. It's very interesting. I saw the AJC claiming that the... Uh, that the problems were Republican disagreement. That's not actually true. Even the media, uh, for the most part today, is fairly calling out the the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi in particular, for being a chief obstacle to blocking I- any any path forward on a stimulus plan. Do you Tom, take any and responsibility, the fact is, Madam Speaker, the fact for the is fact that others- this is stuck? Others have said, the chairman of the Fed, other economists have said, pay now or pay more later. So what we're saying is, let's get, let's help those who need it the most 
Let's send our children safely to school. Let's make sure they have food, make sure their families are not evicted, make sure that they're our grandparents are right. not getting their But own, right now they have nothing, as you well know, because that those well, those those things expired. So Well what do you think that get out of a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar food uh, uh, designation in the Republican plan? In other words, you're acting as if there's some great big thing that No they're no no proposing. I'm not I'm asking if there's if there's room for compromise of on course. your end. Of course, there's room for compromise, but you have to see okay. the entire so I want to ask package. About, so I want to ask about that. The next spending deadline, as you know better than I, uh, for Congress to take action is September 30th. So is yes. it possible that Americans will have to wait until late September, almost two months from now, without any congressional relief? The, uh, on September 30th to do what? I'm sorry, Mr. So that's you. the next de deadline, you know, when you all have to act on right, spending. Right, that's right. Is it possible that, right, so is it possible that this stalemate is going to last until then, that people aren't going to get relief from you all in Congress until then? Oh, these are two separate issues. What we do on the appropriations process to meet our mm -hmm. uh, fiscal year deadline is one thing. And you, uh, so you're confident have, you're going to get back to the table and figure this out? Well, we have to. We have to. And that's why we were willing to say we'll come down a trillion. That doesn't mean the needs of the American people have gone down. It just means we recognize that they have a disdain for the needs of the American people. Uh, that's why they question whether people even need the $600. That's why they question, uh, they say to me, some people just don't want to pay rent. Some people don't want to pay rent. So, some, I mean, we, you've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out there encouraging people not to pay rent, uh, just to stand up to the property owners out there. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, uh, has uh, ideological designs on the stimulus plan uh, to keep people. That, you know, so Rand Paul, if you weren't here in the first hour, Rand Paul and I were talking about the federal government paying the $600 in unemployment. It is objectively true that a lot of the people who are getting $600 of unemployment from the federal government never got that much in unemployment ever and are right now engaged in such a way so that through unemployment, they're making more money than they made at work. I know people who are making more money on unemployment than they made in their service industry jobs. I know employers who applied for PPP, the payroll protection program, and their employees nearly rioted because it would mean they would keep getting paid by the business and they would be getting paid less than on unemployment. I know people this has happened to. I know employers who had to boost wages in tough economic times to incentivize employees to come back to work when they were getting so much money on, on unemployment. And I think that the federal government sets dangerous precedents when it does this sort of stuff. And Rand Paul was right on this, that the government should not be incentivizing people staying on the sidelines with unemployment. Uh, you, we, we need to get the economy back to the extent that there are jobs for people to go back to. They need to go. We shouldn't be keeping these people on the sidelines. And you're putting employers in a terrible situation, pushing people to come back to work when the government itself has in, made a mess of the situation. Now, can the president actually do these things? Uh, adding $400 per week in extra unemployment payments till the end of 2020, arguably he needs Congress to appropriate the money, which Congress hasn't done. 
can the president defer payroll taxes? He can do this, by the way. The, the, the payroll tax, what the president can do legally. There's a problem, though, with this. The president is allowed to defer. He's not allowed to stop. And what this means is that an employer right now does not have to pay payroll taxes. But that employer will have to pay that money in the future. Most employers will keep paying because they don't want to get backlogged with their payroll tax. So that he doesn't want to defer that they don't want to make a deferral because they're going to have to owe the money later. This is not an uh, absolution. This is not a forgiveness. This is not a blanket. You don't have to pay it. It's just you don't have to pay it right now. You can pay it next year. And that will put them further behind next year. So that's probably not going to, to impact anyone. The president wants to implement a moratorium on evictions and give financial assistance to renters. There are questions as to legally how he can do this because landlord-tenant law is a state law, not a federal law. Uh, when it comes to, to Section 8 housing, the president probably can do it, but not for your standard renter. And then postpone student loan interest and payments through the end of 2020. He can do that. The president can do that to a degree under some of the laws, but not for private lenders, only for uh, federal government subsidized student loans. Can the president do that? And then what does very much like the um, with, with the uh, payroll taxes, he can't actually waive that interest. He can just backdate the interest. So you're going to owe that interest later. Just not now. This shows the, the limits of presidential power without a congressional intervention. Uh, two of these things, arguably, the president has no power to do except in very sl uh, small numbers of cases. The other two, the president can do, but all he can do is defer debt. He can't actually wipe it out. And that, of course, if, if people do it, it's going to cause them problems on the back end. Things the president can do, um, but things the president maybe should not do. The Democrats, of course, are going to have to come to the table now. And, and this is the funny thing. Some of them are threatening to sue the president for doing this stuff, even though if Barack Obama were president, they would say it was good and constitutional. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have an email from a listener who is listening in Athens, who doesn't think the SEC should play football. Okay. I get the concern. I don't want to disparage this person. I, I'm I'm not going to... to shame them on the radio. They are worried about college football players who make no money and bring in lots of revenue for the schools, not being treated well, not being cared for, and therefore getting the virus and potentially dying. I would like to address this. Your fall college football sports tend to bring in enough revenue to subsidize all of the other sports you skinny jeans clad hipsters care about that no one else on the planet cares about your school soccer team your 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 women's ballet team your your women's team for title 7 whatever to justify balance team I, all, all of these things get subsidized by something called college football 
if your soccer team could bring in the crowd that your college football team could bring in, we could have a different conversation, but we can't because no one really cares about your soccer team. If your women's ballet on skates while playing uh, that that uh, bocce ball team could bring in the the amount of money that your college football team brings in, we wouldn't be worried about this. If your um, LGBTQ, HTP, ABCDEFG track team uh, could bring in the money that the college football team brought in, we wouldn't have to have this conversation. But your college football team in the fall tends to bring in all of the money that all of the other sports that no one cares about uh, actually get subsidized with. Your school gets a ton of money from college football. That means that they want to take care of the players because the players are what we call an investment opportunity for the school. And so you shelter the players. You do essentially what the NBA is doing to its players in their their uh, area, their, their sphere, their bubble at Disney. You keep them safe. You do everything possible to keep them from getting the virus, short of their own stupidity of sneaking out at night to go hang out with their girlfriend and do underage college drinking. And you make a lot of money on college football. So, therefore, your spring sports can go on in ways that they otherwise could not go on. Your your ballerina bocce ball team in the spring that no one even knows you have but you give scholarships for can continue because they've kept your college football players safe. If you want your spring sports, you need to want your college football. If you want your sport that no one cares about but it gives scholarships to kids, you need your college football. The American public needs college football. And by the way, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of the people guilting and shaming individuals who just want to watch college football. How dare you want to watch sports? What about the health and safety of the kids? They're going to be pretty protected by the college. Look at the extreme links that professional sports are going to to protect the investments known as players. They're going to do the same thing at the college level. They're going to do what they can to keep them safe. Listen, if if the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 don't want to play, nobody cares about them anyway. No, Nobody, I mean, the people in Washington State watch the SEC. The people in, I don't know, Bangor, Maine, they, they don't even have a football team. They, they watch the SEC. Arguably, maybe some of them watch the ACC, but they're really more known for their basketball anyway. They watch the SEC. We need the SEC. The only non-SEC my I particularly even care about is in college or the Texas Longhorns, and that's have you seen their cheerleaders? I mean, hands down. Um, the rest of them, nobody cares about anything other than the SEC unless you graduated from that school. We need the SEC. They're going to take care of the players, and those players are going to play marvelous football, and that football is going to generate all sorts of TV revenue because no one's going to be able to go to the stands, and that revenue is going to subsidize your, your, your lame sport that no one cares about that happens in the spring when no one's watching. So I realize there are health concerns that must be balanced, but it's not only a health concern. Now, 
I suspect what's going to happen is the good progressives in charge of the SEC and the ACC will also shut down their football seasons because the the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are shutting down theirs. But they shouldn't because they're revenue drivers. And when you can't, when your ballerina bocce ball program can't get started in the spring and your kid loses her fishing scholarship, it's going to be because your college football teams couldn't play in the fall that these bad things are now happening. We do have to look at this thing as greater than the sum of its parts and football holds up the rest of these athletic programs and schools. All right. I, I, I saw this one. I, I, I saw it and I just, I, I got a, it's an old one, but I like this one. Uh, Veggie Tales creators are celebrating the legalization of recreational cannabis use with its new character, Cannabis Carl. The character is a sign of the progress the United States has made on its views of the controversial plant. Kids are ready for this, said DreamWorks executive Brian Jones, who's overseeing production. In his inaugural episode, Cannabis Carl will be at the border. Uh, to the VeggieTales house property, trying to cross over to start a new life, only to be met by Pa Grape, who is out patrolling for illegal vegetables. After Pa Grape puts Carl in custody for being an illegal plant, Mayor Archibald passes a new law that Cannabis Carl is a legal citizen. Carl is welcomed by the VeggieTales cast as they sing a song about old laws and new covenants, drawing a powerful parallel from scripture that is easy for kids to understand. At the episode, as the episode ends, Cannabis Carl helps Mayor Archibald cure glaucoma in his right eye and ends up becoming roommates with Mr. Lunt, buying snacks at Paw Grape Store and living off the town's generous food stamp program. <laughs> That's a, a Babylon B parody, uh, but uh, I just, it, it's recirculating on social media. I saw, I didn't realize it was actually two years old. It was timestamped for today, but it's actually, um, oh, I, I see, they they pushed it out again. Babylon B did. <laughs> Well played, well played. All right. Now, uh, as we have a, a nation descend into chaos, and say, well, as we have Portland and Chicago descending into, into peaceful protests, where, well, why is it that as we have peaceful protests, places catch on fire and windows get smashed? I, 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 for the life of me, don't understand that. But we still have a presidential campaign going on, and we still have one of those presidential candidates not coming out of his house except for random bike rides. Join me to discuss this uh, from the Trump, cam- Trump campaign, Hogan Gidley. Uh, Hogan, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. I appreciate it. Okay, so what's this about you guys wanting a fourth debate? Uh, well, uh, we wanted to add a debate to the uh, you know three three debate schedule because you know in this time of COVID and quarantines and and lockdowns, um, you know the American people don't get a chance to see the candidates out on the campaign trail. And you know because you've been in these scrums before, you you get a chance to pressure test these candidates and their positions, not just from members of the media, but also you know average voters who get a chance to ask questions of these candidates. You're not seeing that right now. So one of the things we thought was it might be a nice thing for the for the American people to get a chance to see these two men debate, uh, not just the three times, but at a fourth. But but even more than the fourth, what we were looking for was um, if, if not adding a fourth debate, making it earlier, taking the last debate, the third debate and adding it before ballots hit people's mailboxes, because what you will have with the current schedule is, you know, in 1980s, um, debate schedule for a 2020 race seems a little bit odd, but I digress. 
Um, you had <laughs> about 8 million people with the ability to vote in 16 states before the first debate. And that seems kind of like a disservice to the American people, if you ask me. So we just pushed for it to see if we could uh, if we could try and get Joe Biden to debate again, get him out of that, that out of that hidey hole up from the basement. And maybe even on, on top of that, we, we also offered a few you know, non-biased, straight down the middle uh, moderators as well, because we know who they usually pick and how that usually goes. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But right now it looks like they did leave, they, they rejected it for the most part, but then pointed to the fact that, um, you know, if we can come to a, an agreement with the Biden campaign, they'd be willing to work with us to see what we can do. So hopefully the Biden campaign will, will, will do it. First of all, I, I got to give you props for use of Heidi Hole. I, I I love it, and it's such an accurate description of what's going on with Joe Biden in his campaign. But second, you make a, a really valid point that we're we we do the this national uh, presidential debate uh, where you've got the big consortium that gets together and they plan everything out, but they have failed to keep up with the trend of early voting, and so many votes will be cast before they even see uh, the president and Joe Biden engage with each other, let alone the vice presidential candidates. Well, 41% of votes were cast before Election Day in 2016, so just the last cycle, almost half. So you're telling me when you have coronavirus in this country and people locked down, all the things I just mentioned, it's going to be exorbitantly higher than that. And when you look at the early primary states that, that uh, we just had some massive ad buys in of the you know North Carolinas, the Floridas, Georgias, um, they – they already see 60 to 75 percent of their votes before Election Day. So it makes sense to try and get out there and get those people information before they start casting ballots. And, you know, we, we often hear for decades and decades about the October surprise that happens in elections, and it typically does. But still, if a majority of the people are voting before October – you know, what does that matter? So the whole thing has kind of been turned on its ear. The 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 commission on debates knows that, um, you know, a majority of people are going to vote before Election Day. And now when you have Democrats also, you know, pushing in multiple states and, and getting a law signed in Nevada, for example, to actually legalize voting after the election, um, there's going to be a lot of problems going on. So we're just trying to get ahead of it. And look, I, I think the media and the Democrats don't want Donald Trump speaking to the American people without the filter of the mainstream media, and they don't want Joe Biden speaking to the American people, but both for very different reasons. They know the president's message resonates. The forgotten men and women of this country have been forgotten no more. And then they also see a 50-year failed policies of, of uh Joe Biden in elected office with an America last message and America's fault message. And I think they clearly don't want either one of us out on the trail. And it's for obvious reasons. Yeah, particularly I'm just I'm perplexed by the Biden strategy of uh, after years of attacking the president for for what they say is, is his attacks on the media, calling them the enemy of the people and the like. And, and here comes Joe Biden who arguably would give the press a, the interviews they want, and yet he's refusing to engage to the point that even anchors at CNN are starting to question why won't this guy come come out and talk to us? And it seems to me, given the clips, that he, after about three minutes of speaking, he wears out and says something dumb, so I understand why, but it's just remarkable that he just hmm. isn't able to engage like that. 
three three minutes. Wow, you're being very gracious this morning. It takes usually <laughs> less than three minutes. But also, I, I just real quick, I had to, you you mentioned the the bike ride. It was a funny talk about ignoring science. I mean, he's literally wearing a mask when the CDC and the health experts right. say don't wear a mask, and he's not wearing a helmet when you're supposed to wear a helmet. So I think he's got the whole thing reversed. But I get what you're saying. I, I just think that every time he goes out there, it's not just mistakes. It's serious problems from a policy standpoint. So, yeah, he's going to make gaffes. He's going to talk about Arizona being a great city. He's going to talk about how children love to rub his leg hair. He's going to say all the crazy things that, you know, black journalists, uh, you know, he's a cocaine junkie and all black people think alike. That's the way he talks, and that's going to be a problem for him. But more than that, it's the embracing of these just radical left policies now. I mean, he's an empty vessel, and empty vessels have to be filled with something. And he's been filled with the Bernie Sanders and the Ilhan Omars and the Rashida Tlaibs and, and their their radical ideas of remaking this country into the image of something socialistic. That's a serious problem, I think, for Joe Biden. And when you see his own words of you know, the first thing he wants to do is raise taxes and, and get rid of the uh, the tax cuts, and I'm going to embrace the Green New Deal, killing 10 million energy jobs just right off the bat. In a time we're trying to rebuild this economy, and, and President Trump rebuilt it once, he's rebuilding it again, and Joe Biden's response is a $4 trillion tax cut, or excuse me, a tax increase. Hillary Clinton ran on increasing your taxes by $2 trillion and lost, and Joe Biden took one look at $2 trillion and said, Hold my beer. I'm going to double it and put that right on top of the American people. Oh, and here's the cherry on top. I'm going to flood the the, the workforce with uh, millions of, of illegal aliens to boot. I mean, it's just insanity. And so I think they're more afraid not just of the gaffes he makes and the mistakes he makes, but his radical left policies, which really will impact our lives negatively. Well, yes. And the media, it seems, I, I know you guys have highlighted his planned tax increase, and it's in the documentation. He has said it. He has advocated for it. And I, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at how willfully the media has ignored uh, a tax increase that would be bigger than what Hillary Clinton proposed in 2016 at a time of global pandemic when the economy is not doing so well. Well, look. Uh, you can love the media, you can hate the media, but one thing's for sure, they protect their own. And Joe Biden is one of them. His policy ideas of the radical left fall directly in line with so many in the American media who want to remake this country. Um, so it makes sense that they're going, try, going to try and cover for him. I mean, you know, these debates are a great example. Look, Joe Biden's been de debating people, uh, you know, in political life for half of a century. He's not a bad debater. But what we know is going to happen is if he goes out and just says, hey, my name is Joe, I mean, the, the ticker tape parade he's going to receive from the media of being just brilliant and running circles around Donald Trump and propping, propping him up you know, with, with no rationale or reason to do so is going to be just astounding. I mean, they want him to win. It is very obvious. We know 85-plus you know, percent of the press corps votes Democratic. We know 95 percent of the news coverage against Donald Trump is negative. Whenever they make, quote-unquote, mistakes and have to correct it in the papers, or on, online the next day, those mistakes never cut in, in President Trump's favor. They never you know, say, oh, he, he created 100 million jobs. Oh, wrong, sorry, it's really only 98 million. They never make a mistake in our favor. It's always uh, you know, against us. So that's what we're up against. We know that. But um, you know, it, it's, 
it just kind of blows my mind to watch the media dance around and cover for Joe Biden. And one great example, and I'll end with this comment, is you remember he was asked, would you defund the police or can we all agree we could redirect money from the police? And Joe Biden says, yes, absolutely. And you watch the media just contort themselves to say, no, 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 (laughs) redirect is not the same thing as defund. And I say, if if you don't think redirect Eric Erickson is the same thing as defund, then I'm going to redirect your next paycheck into my bank account, and we'll see if you feel defunded or not. I mean, that's absolute insanity, and they know it, and so do the American people. So I think think in the end we're going to do really well uh, because the facts are on our side here. Well, listen, Hogan, thank you very much for stopping by. Good luck to you out there. You definitely have the deck stacked against you out there in the media, so keep pushing. Thanks so much, Eric. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. Hogan Gidley from the Trump campaign. You know, he does make a very good point. Say what you will uh, about the president, Joe Biden. It is very clear that the media is covering for the gaffes of the Biden camp. I mean, for example, how many press reports have you heard? And it's not even a gaffe in, in this regard. How many press reports have you heard covering the fact that Joe Biden wants a multi-trillion dollar tax increase greater than the tax increase Hillary Clinton herself wanted in 2016? Uh, he wants to repeal the president's corporate income tax breaks that actually did repatriate corporate dollars into this country and give people pay raises. And you don't hear it in the media. I wonder why that is. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I, I, this wasn't on my radar until a few minutes ago. Uh, during commercial break, I saw this. Uh, Madison Cawthorn, uh, if you will recall, he's the 25 year old Republican. Uh, he is in a wheelchair and, uh, despite that, he hunts and lives his life. He is, uh, beat a Trump backed candidate, uh, for, Congress in North Carolina in a primary. And it is, it's, um, it, it's, he, so he, he ran for Congress. He beat the Trump backed candidate and he was heralded as a hero by the media for beating the Trump backed candidate. There's a problem, though. Um, Madison Cawthorn is objectively a a good-looking, photogenic, 25-year-old conservative guy uh, who is getting all sorts of attention and overshadowing some Democratic candidates, and he has a potential to win. Naturally, it's problematic, and so the media is now setting about destroying him. Let me read you uh, an Instagram caption. Madison Cawthorn uh, went to Germany with his brother. And they went to Eagle's Nest, which was Adolf Hitler's uh, vacation house. And here's the caption. The vacation house of the Fuhrer. Seeing the Eagle's Nest has been on my bucket list for a while, and it did not disappoint. Strange to hear so many laughs and share such a good time with my brother, where only 79 years ago a supreme evil shared laughs and good times with his compatriots. A supreme evil. The media has taken this and said, well, this guy's a closet Nazi. He's blonde hair and blue-eyed, young Republican. He must be a Nazi too. And they selectively quoted that uh, his trip to this vacation house did not disappoint 
and he shared last that they completely left out that he called Adolf Hitler a supreme evil. Or, hey, here's here's this one. He went to Mexico, and he wrote this tweet. This is from 2016, four years ago. Following in the steps of the conquistadors, except we conquered a Mexican restaurant and not an entire civilization. <gasps> racism, racism, they're, they're attacking him for this stuff. And this is, it is ridiculous, mind you, but this goes to show this is one of the, the big issues people on the right have, that it doesn't matter how good a person you are, how kind a person you are, as long as you're Republican, the media will selectively edit you to trash you and destroy you. And that is one reason for those of you who don't understand why so many people on the right uh, gravitate towards a guy like Donald Trump. Well, this is one of those reasons because this guy is a conservative who beat a Trump candidate, ran as a, a conservative with a an actual ideological message of smaller government and self-reliance, and that's not good enough because he's actually running as a Republican. And therefore, by running as a Republican, he must be excoriated and condemned and selectively edited and shamed, uh, all so that a Democrat might win. All so that a Democrat might win. And that, my friends, is why so many people are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump and have his back because the president fights back on this stuff and points out the hypocrisy in this stuff. If remember, 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 remember that in, in 2000 and 2004 in 2008 and 2012, you had a bunch of Democrats say essentially that all these Republicans were racist. All these Republicans were bad. Remember Mitt Romney? He's a Mormon, so he must be a racist, even though he had uh, black adopted grandchildren. George W. Bush. Got to be a racist, even though he has uh, black members of his family. J John McCain, who the, the Democrats defended against George W. Bush in 2000. In 2008, John McCain ran for president. The very media that had always defended him and had his back savaged him. And so along comes Donald Trump after seeing Republican candidates for years say they're not going to they're not going to fight back in the way that uh, so many people wishes. So many people wish they would. Along come Donald Trump, who just doesn't give a darn. And he fights back ruthlessly. Anyone who criticizes him, his goal is to punch back five times as hard. As someone who has criticized Donald Trump, I've been on the receiving end of his punches. He told people I was fired like a dog from a job where, where I myself had decided it was time to leave after 10 years. Came after me. I had people show up at my house. After the president mean tweeted me, I had people I literally show up at my house to threaten my family. And people stand by the president on this stuff because they see that so many reporters are so in the tank for the left and so willing to savage and demagogue good people on the right, they're willing to go with a blunt instrument against the left. They're, they're willing to go uh, with someone who will throw ruthless punches to the left. Whether they deserve it or not, he'll go after the media, he'll attack them. And more and more, what we're also seeing is that members of the media 
now that we see them on social media, it turns out that they deserve the scorn. They deserve the attacks. It's kind of a big deal there. Kind of a big deal. If Madison Cawthorn, the young guy in a wheelchair who beat a Trump-backed candidate, is now going to be excoriated for having blonde hair and blue eyes that he must be a Nazi, there's really no Republican they won't come after. And that's why so many Republicans are so loyal to the President of the United States. When we come back, the perils of that loyalty, though, are coming, the chickens coming home to roost, quote Jeremiah right there. We need to talk about what happened at Liberty University. Why do all pairs of glasses look totally different on the shelf than on your face? Coastal makes it so easy. Browse and virtually try on hundreds of frames without having to leave your couch. You don't even need to turn off your TV. You do you. At Coastal.com, you get prescription glasses starting at $9 with free shipping and 30-day risk-free returns. Plus, they have the most advanced virtual try-on technology you'll find anywhere. Turn your frames into sunglasses by testing out colored lenses, tints, or find what looks good for you. With Coastal, you don't have to spend hours at the store or hundreds of dollars. Go to Coastal.com. Pick the frames you want, see how they look on you on your phone, then enter your prescription details and orders. The technology is so simple and so advanced. Uh, You'll be able to stare at your phone, see yourself in the reflection that you see with your camera lens, what the the glasses look like on you. Listen, Coastal has over 2,000 frames to choose from and 24-hour customer support. We're talking about Newsweek's America's Best Customer Service. You'll never waste time or money on an expensive optometrist again. You go to Coastal.com. Now through October 31st, they're offering our listeners the best deal they have going anywhere. 50% off your first pair of glasses at coastal.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Get free shipping, 30-day risk-free returns, and 50% off at coastal.com slash Eric. Only until October 31st. It's spelled C-O-A-S-T-A-L dot com, coastal.com slash Eric. Some restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. I hope you're doing well. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I've been telling you about the Archon Ready group that's coming into Georgia. They're doing training uh, December 5th and 6th. Uh, My wife and I signed up to go. It's $500 a person and you got to bring ammo. They've lowered the ammo requirements, though, because of the shortages out there. Um, and I just need you to know that they are, um, they're, they're almost full. If you're thinking this is something you want to do for those, of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, there is a group called Archon ready and they do training for SWAT teams around the country. They're uh, special operators, Delta and the like, uh, not Delta airlines, but in the military, um, I, I said seals, but I, I got a got a message from one of the guys who heard me say that. Say nope, nope, we're better than that. <laughs> uh, no, they they are they're they're uh, military former military. They do a a brilliant job in training, and um, they're they're coming to Atlanta for SWAT teams. Whenever they come to a place to do training for. Uh, police groups, they try to do some civilian training as well. And and it's rare to get them in the Southeast. They came, my wife and I found out about it. I didn't realize I had a buddy of mine who was involved with them until after we had signed up for it, but we did because we always want to improve our training skills. Uh, I hear just phenomenal things about them. But in any event, if you're interested at all, 
Uh, text the word data to 33777. I'll send you back a link so you can check them out. Um, but it's it's going to be outside of Atlanta in the Paulding County area. Some really good training. Uh, and I'm, I'm seeing an email come through from a listener about uh, 9mm rounds. I'm going to need some. Um, we we got we to gotta find some some ammunition uh, for, for our guns because you got to bring... Oh gosh! Well, they've lowered the, the requirement was five hundred rounds for for your handgun, and I think three hundred rounds for a rifle, uh, and they're going to re- reduce those. But it is it is tight. Have y'all seen the numbers on uh, gun purchases in this country now? July was the all time record single month record for handgun purchases in this country, and I can see it when I go to gun stores. So my in laws live in Carrollton, and. There is a great gun store down the street from their house called Shot Spot, and I love the I love going in there. Uh, they're good people, and they have one of the most impressive selections of guns, or at least they did. And in the last couple of months, their inventory has just been wiped out. Uh, I went down to Barrow. Uh, if you've y'all, I, I tell you, I don't care where you are in the nation; it's worth a trip. It really is. It is a must-go destination. Uh, down in Taylor County, Georgia, in Butler, there's a place called Barrow Automotive. It is a Napa Auto Parts store. And you walk into the store, and you go to the back of the store, and it is the biggest gun store. They have incredible guns. I'm pretty sure they've got a Barrett 50 caliber in there. They've got some impressive guns. And... Even they're having um, inventory issues because people are just buying left and right, and and it, it is indication of what's happening in this country. And do you know that you know who drove up the price, or I shouldn't say drove up the price, drove up the demand? You know who's buying all the guns? Black families. Black families taking matters into their own hands, protecting themselves. Because, you know, you, you defund police. The police aren't going into those communities. You claim it's racism when they go into the black community. Well, then that increases crime in the black community because people know the police aren't going there. And so they've they've got to protect themselves. It's sad that this has happened, but but this is where we are. The, the media can't be honest about the rioting that's going on out there. And, you know... It, I'm trying to be as even-handed as I can on this stuff. There are peaceful protesters out there, and they are peacefully protesting. But those peaceful protests have been overrun by mobs of angry, skinny-clad white kids who are just nursing anti-Trump grievances, and they are they, they've hijacked their movement. I want to put some context around the protest movement and the um and the, the the conservative movement believe it or not i am a professional i want to tie these things together we've heard the media pursue the narrative for a while now that the protests have been mostly peaceful and in some cases they were and in portland oregon during the day they were mostly peaceful but at night they would turn violent and overwhelmingly you had uh activists within antifa and other groups uh, all, all mostly white and young hijack these protests and turn them violent. And the media kept pushing the narrative that they were peaceful. Well, the federal troops are out of Portland and Portland is still on fire from the rioters. In fact, the mayor is even now acknowledging that there have been riots. There have been riots in Chicago now. They weren't peaceful protests there. 
And what happens is when you do not police your own movement, your movement gets taken over by fringe elements who then give your movement a bad name. And the people within the, the protest movement of Black Lives Matters, many of them were sympathetic to the rioters and violence to begin with. And then the rioters and the violence hijacked them. And now they're being defined by the rioters and, and the hijacking of the movement towards violence. And this actually could help President Trump get reelected. And I got to imagine that there must be polling internally with Democrats right now showing them this, because in the last two weeks, suddenly you've got people like Chuck Schumer calling for schools to be reopened and people like Nancy Pelosi denouncing the violence. They would not be doing that. They were silent on the violence and the protest movement for over a month. When it was clear to everyone it was happening, they were silent. They went with, well, defund police doesn't really mean defund police. It means something else. And yes, we want to do that. They went with all these things. And now suddenly they're against defunding the police. They're against deprioritizing the police. They're against the violence. They're condemning the rioters. And now they want kids back in school. There's got to be something in their polling that shows them that the public is turning on them. If you do not police your own movement and clean up your own side, the voters or someone else will do it for you. And that gets me to the conservative movement. Jerry Falwell is out an indefinite leave of absence at Liberty University. At the same time, the Attorney General of New York is looking at ending the National Rifle Association, which is chartered in New York and never bothered to move its charter to a state more compatible with the Second Amendment. The complaints about the NRA, there are some legitimate grounds here, but I want to be very careful. The Attorney General of New York, let's be honest, doesn't care about the legitimate complaints and the legitimate concerns of of recklessness within the NRA. The, the Attorney General of New York cares about ending the National Rifle Association because she hates uh, their advocacy for the Second Amendment. But she's using legitimate problems to wipe out the organization for her own progressive agenda. The organization doubled down on Wayne LaPierre defending him. They pushed Oliver North, of all people, an American hero, pushed Oliver North out the door to defend Wayne LaPierre. And more and more uh, allegations are coming out of corrupt internal dealings within the NRA that should trouble everyone who has ever given them money. And I am an NRA donor. And it bothers me tremendously. I had to stop recommending them as a group to give to when I found out what was going on behind the scenes. And the, go, let's go to Liberty University, where Jerry Falwell Jr. Was, was backed because he's Jerry Falwell Sr.'s son. He has no background in education or in ministry. He was a lawyer. They put him in charge of this university. Uh, the university has been growing. And then he he not only got to the point of being a Trump supporter, but went out of his way to defend the president. Every crazy thing the president said, you know, sometimes the president says stuff you don't have to defend. And Jerry Falwell, like Robert Jeffries out in Texas, that pastor out there, reliably they'll rush out and defend the president. Remember when the president on the campaign trail in 2016 defended Planned Parenthood and said they did good things? Yeah, these people go, oh, yeah, they do do some good things. We want to defund them because of abortion. But, I mean, Robert Jeffries actually went out there and, and said something like that. It, Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, is antagonistic to everyone. He's actually blocked me on Twitter, by the way. And over the last couple of years, it has come to light that Jerry Falwell and his wife, well, they're curious individuals. There have been strange stories about them that some pool boy down in Florida, he gave some contract to some athletic trainer. There are all sorts of rumors and suggestions and, and innuendo. And instead of pushing back against the rumors and suggestions innuendo, Jerry Falwell this past week uh, put a picture on Instagram of him and his wife's pregnant assistant, both of them with their pants unzipped, standing next to each other, 
uh, guts spilling out. Nobody wanted to see that. Jerry Falwell thought it would be funny to put it on Instagram. He then deleted it, and the next day tried to do damage control and went on a uh, program where he sounded, I mean, he sounded drunk. Maybe he was very tired, but he sounded drunk. Did himself no favors. And the university has finally had enough. Mark Walker, congressman from North Carolina, who actually has some affiliation to Liberty, and he's also a, a ranking Republican in Congress, called for Falwell to leave. The university board basically gave him no choice. Now, Liberty needs to get rid of other people as well because Jerry Falwell had a lot of enablers who encouraged and, and emboldened him to behave as he behaved. But the point of all of this is that if you don't clean up your own movement, you're going to let it get hijacked by people who will define it in ways you never intended. The protesters have been hijacked by Antifa that are now defining the protests as violent. When a lot of the protesters had legit grievances, they wanted to protest and completely undermined by the violence. Uh, The only thing keeping them afloat right now is you have a media aggressively lying about what's going on. On the right... In the conservative movement, you no longer have a movement based on ideas. You have a bunch of grifters who are trying to get rich off a bunch of old people, sending them text messages and emails, claiming that Antifa's coming to get them. you got to send them money or else. You've got people like Jerry Falwell out there willing to beclown himself to defend the president, even when the president doesn't need defending. He just so much wants to be close to power, and he's up the president's leg uh, in, in offensive, nonsensical ways. If you do not clean up your own house, others will clean it up for you. The National Rifle Association is about to be cleaned up, if not wiped out, by the Attorney General of New York because the board of the NRA turned a blind eye to the excesses of its leadership and their insider dealings. The conservative movement has been hijacked by a bunch of grifters and people cashing in. It's no longer a movement of ideas. It it, it solely uh, exists to make some people rich and to help the president's reelection. I'm sorry, but I'm I'm so naive. I believe the conservative movement of the Republican Party are two separate entities. And now they behave as one to get the president of the United States reelected completely devoid of ideas. If you do not take care of your own side and police it and regulate it and clean it up, someone's going to do it for you. All of us should learn lessons from this. But particularly ideological movements should learn lessons from this, that uh, when you give the worst elements an in, they're going to do their best to take it over. It is I, I used to regularly recommend conservative groups as as worthwhile groups, and I need to get back to doing this. Uh, but some of the groups I used to recommend, I, I, I have found have, have just become uh, anemic grifters over time. You've got to, if you're an ideas-based movement, it needs to be about ideas, not people and not personalities. It needs to be about ideas. And if you cease being about ideas when you're an ideological movement, people are going to cease supporting you because people want ideas. They, they, they want positive ideas on how to move forward, and they don't really want cults of personality. And too many people are in the cults of personality, and that's unfortunate. If you don't clean up your own side, somebody else is going to do it. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left, the right, the center, Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Libertarian. Well, okay, Libertarians, they just seem to keep getting worse. Did you hear the Libertarian presidential candidate got bit by a rabid bat? That's like the most Libertarian Party thing ever. If you don't clean up your own side, though, someone's going to clean it up for you. Now, let's go back to guns. 
Before I get out of here, let me tell you, this this hour brought to you by True Precision, true-precision.com. They made my concealed carry gun. Well, they didn't make it. I've got a Glock 43X, but I went through them and I upgraded this 43X and it is a work of art. It is beautiful and it fires so well. They've got a barrel from True Precision. I've got a slide from True Precision. Uh, they, they put better sights on it for me. I'm about to upgrade my trigger with them. True Precision, if you need a gun, don't just get any gun. Get a work of art from True Precision. Um, make it so that, so that other people, when you go to the range, they say, whoa, where'd you, cause this happened to me. I was at Stoddard's in Atlanta last week and I pulled out my concealed carry gun and everybody wanted to see it. Where'd you get this gun? And it's like, well, it's a Glock, but I upgraded it from true precision. Uh, you seriously, I am a customer I am a loyal customer of true precision and you will be too. Once you use them, true-precision.com is their website. In fact, if you go buy a slide, a barrel, a, a, an upgraded trigger, and you put Eric in as a checkout code, E-R-I-C-K, you'll get 10% off. And it's worth it. True-Precision.com is the website. Go check them out. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, you probably need to know that the uh, president of Wake Forest University has come out in favor of college football this morning. Uh, even as uh, Big Ten schools have voted that they don't want to play, Nebraska and Iowa were the only two of the Big Ten schools that wanted to play. Uh, and I suspect you're going to have a bunch of people overwhelm universities with complaints uh, for trying to bail out of this. Um, it, it, there's there's some polling out that I want to I want to speak to for a moment. Uh, the battleground poll is actually a, a very good bipartisan polling firm out of George Washington University, uh, where they focus on battleground states. And there's interesting trend line that I'm starting to see in other polls, including here in Georgia. The president is behind Joe Biden in this poll by 14 points. Don't 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 focus on that one right now. Focus on the generic ballot. The Democrats are only ahead by six points. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when you consider this is a poll of registered voters and the generic ballot percentage for Democrats has to be above four for them to make any gains at all, when it's at six, that's not good for the Democrats. And here's the thing people aren't paying attention to. This is pretty consistent among polling, including what you see here in Georgia. There seems to be a growing recognition among suburban voters that they're still Republican, but they don't like the president. So there will be down-ballot splits. Now, what does that mean? It means increasingly that there are a lot of people who look very likely to vote against President Trump who will then vote Republican for everyone else. Increasingly, it appears that Republicans who have their own brand will fare better in November than those who are just perceived to be the president's supporters. In fact, I have heard this in the polling of David Perdue against John Ossoff. Uh, the Democrats are trying to tie David Perdue to Donald Trump. But the reality is that David Perdue in Georgia has been defined by his own program platform and issues. And it's going to be harder for the Democrats to tie him to the president when David Perdue is out aggressively championing his own agenda. And this is a path forward for Republicans into November. They've got to build their own brand. It can't be about now. Listen, hear me out here. Just, just, just hear me. We're not talking about you who are voting for the president. 
we're talking about the vast number of independent voters who don't hate the GOP but don't like the president. You need those people too in a lot of places. And the way to get them is to do what David Perdue is doing here in Georgia. That is to chart your own path forward. Say, these are my issues. This is the legislation I, I want to introduce or I've introduced. Uh, here's what I care about and be seen and be visible in your community. There is a path forward. There is a path forward for the GOP that goes around the president. And this is very clear. You do not have to attack the president. You do not have to distance yourself from the president. You do not have to condemn the president or otherwise campaign against the president or reject the president. All you have to do is be your own person. All you have to do is state a case for yourself. Because ultimately, it is still true that all politics is local. And if you can be seen as the local guy and not as the Donald Trump guy, you have an ability to pick off independent voters who may not like the president, but they still like Republicans. And believe it or not, that's the thing. And, and again, anecdote is not data. I realize you and all of your friends, uh, you all love the president. And you're going to vote for the president, you're going to vote Republican, and you may define yourself as a Trump voter, not a Republican voter. But, you know, there are actually a lot of people out there who aren't fans of the president but consider themselves Republican, and, and they don't like what's happened with the Republican Party. They're not like the Lincoln Project people who have gone outside the Republican Party and want to tear it down. They want to keep voting Republican. They just don't particularly care for the president. Now, here's the other thing. The president has an opportunity to capitalize right now with those people because those people clearly don't like the Democrats. That's why they're willing to vote Republican down ballot. They just don't like the president. If the president can convince them with the rioting and the protesting and everything else that's going on out there, that whether they like him or not, he would be a better bet for them than Joe Biden. The president has inroads with those people. He can enable those people to vote for him just for their own self-preservation. And that seems to be the path the president's campaign intends to take on the campaign trail with their messaging. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson, and I I want to deviate from the mean. I want to I want to get away from politics for a minute. I want to talk about something that we don't normally talk about on a on a radio program, but I'm actually concerned about, care about, and passionate about, and I missed the actual day. I want to talk about human trafficking for a moment. And in particular, I want to talk about pornography and human trafficking. Not a not a comfortable subject to talk about, uh, particularly on a conservative talk radio program when you may have kids around, but everybody needs to hear this. There is a lot of research out there that uh, a 70, something like 70% of boys, by the time they are in sixth grade, will have encountered pornography. And more than 50% of boys will regularly engage with pornography by the time they're in eighth grade. Eighth grade. I don't think I, now I grew up in a Muslim country, I don't know that I encountered 
pornography until I was in high school. Um, I, and it's, it's a subject that is awkward to talk about. It is a subject that a lot of guys behind the scenes is they're okay engaging with. And I want to give you some interesting data. So 70% of boys, by the time they're in sixth grade, will have encountered pornography. Over 50% by the time they're in eighth grade will be regular consumers of pornography. Uh, And that data, uh, it doesn't matter what your race is, and it doesn't matter what your income level is, and it doesn't matter where you live in the country. Whether you're in the rural south or the urban north, whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're in a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household or whether you're in a broken family, uh, the data is the same. It is remarkably consistent for boys. And by the way, girls, by the time girls are in 10th grade, this is something I I couldn't even fathom, but uh, girls by the time they're in 10th grade will encounter pornography and about 50% of girls by the time they're in 12th grade will regularly engage with pornography. Did, Did you know that? Um, there are a number of, of ministry groups out there that focus on pornography, and there are a lot, there's a lot of scientific research on how it reshapes brains and redefines relationships and breaks up relationships and sets impossible standards and then drives cultural changes that are harmful, to particularly to, to girls. I want to give you another statistic, and I need you to listen to this one. If you only listen to one thing on this radio program today, I need you to listen to this. The data is overwhelming and consistent. The 70% number and this 50% number on engagement with pornography among boys. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor, black or white, urban or rural, broken home or two parents in the house. They will become regular consumers of pornography by the time they are in eighth grade, 50% of boys. And by the way, the number goes up by 12th grade. It's even higher, except there's one consistent data trend with a 90% rate. 90% of boys who have a father who talks to them about pornography and explains to them why they should not engage with it, will avoid it. Let me say this again, because this is really important. 90% of boys who have a father who engages with them on the subject and explains to them why it's harmful to them and why they should not engage it, will avoid it. Overwhelmingly, though, Fathers do not talk to their sons about the issue because the fathers typically themselves have engaged with it over time and they see it as harmless fun that they outgrow. There's a problem, though. The fathers overwhelmingly grew up in the age of no Internet and the boys live in the age of full-time 24-7 Internet. It is way easier for a kid to get online now and discover pornography than it was for their father to sneak someone's magazine or watch through the squiggly lines on, on pay TV. It is way more accessible now. And the fathers who are willing to engage with their sons on this issue are actually successful at getting their sons to not engage with it. Now, 
How do you do that? And this gets me to the human trafficking issue. There is unbelievable research out there on who these people are, who are the amateurs online who engage in pornography. And a lot of it comes to human trafficking and drug addiction. There is a, this a, an aspect of the media, the, the, the demonic aspect of the media, and I'm going to use that phrase, the demonic aspect of the media, um, the, that wants to normalize prostitution and pornography, that it is that they view it as a matter of women's empowerment, uh, that it, it emboldens women get paid more in pornography than men typically get paid. Uh, women have more control in pornography. Uh, women want to sell their bodies to, to men for sexual services, and they should be empowered to do that. It's just one more area where a woman can earn income by empowering herself over men. And, and, and you see how the conversation goes is it's made about power, not they're degrading themselves. They don't view it that way at the time. Most of them don't. Um, but there's another aspect of this where they are, in essence, uh, valuing their body. They're, they're taking their soul out of it. They're taking their self-worth out of it and, and making it about their body and and the cost to their body. And ultimately, there is a long-term cost in terms of suicide, in terms of drug addiction, in, in terms of, of STDs. But more important than that, there is also the issue of human trafficking. And many of the people involved in pornography are trafficked. Many of them are groomed. I ran for public office on the issue of human trafficking. And I was elected and dealt with that issue in Macon, Georgia. The reason I ran for office is I had to go downtown one night. There's a local station, Fox 24, here in Macon. They asked me to come on one night to talk about something with politics. I was on CNN at the time. They asked me to come down and talk. Or Actually, I guess I hadn't gotten to CNN at the time. Um, but I was doing regular TV hits. They asked me to come down. I was running redstate.com at the time. And it was a, it was a, for a 10, it was for 11 o'clock news hour. And so I drove downtown from my house, uh, in, in Macon, just off Riverside drive at the time, uh, in the Lee drive, Riverside drive area. If those of you familiar with it in Macon, I drove down Riverside drive and passed. I counted 10 massage parlors, all of them Asian themed massage parlors. I had never seen them ever have business. They all had open signs on. There was no one ever anywhere near there. And at 1030 at night, driving from my house downtown, I passed 10 of these places and all of them had customers and I was perplexed. How are these places open at 1030? Well, I was naive. I, I, I did not realize that so many of them were fronts for prostitution. And I started writing about this. I had a blog at the time and I was writing about uh, what I was encountering and I started getting death threats from people attacking me um, and for, for daring to say they threatened to sue me, um, lawsuits de defaming the Asian-American community, on and on and on. And I connected with an activist in Gwinnett County who had been successful in shutting a lot of them down in Gwinnett County uh, after she had gone to one of these places actually in need of a massage and had the woman answer the door saying that no women were allowed in, in the facility. And, and she's like, well, what do I, I actually need a massage. She wound up going, finding a le legitimate therapist to help her, but in the process was really perplexed and started to get into it and realized that many of them are fronts for prostitution and many of the women who work there work there against their will. 
and she led an effort uh, to raise awareness in Gwinnett County, got them shut down, and they moved further and further south. Ultimately, a lot of them wound up in Macon. When I was on the city council, we worked, uh, actually, we worked with Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State, Karen Handel before him, on regula- regulation that helped put a lot of these places out of business. Not all of them. We weren't completely successful, but we were able to shut down a lot of them in large part because we worked with licensed massage therapists on the things that all of them have in common. For example, a licensed massage therapist is not going to have a room with no light bulbs. A licensed massage therapist is going to have a log of all their clients. A licensed massage therapist is going to have some level of certification. A licensed massage therapist is not going to sleep on the premises at their at their facility. And believe it or not, a, a lot of these places, they have rooms where they simply don't have light bulbs. They have rooms with mattresses on the floors where, where the women sleep. They refuse to keep logs of their customers. And you could pass business ordinances because one of the concerns was that, well, we would be taking the police away from real crime to deal with essentially what was consensual act uh, from some members of, of our city council at the time. And so we used business ordinance. And, and who could be against the business people, going business licensing people going in and making sure their business license file was good? And, and it actually worked to a degree. There are a number of these places that were put out of business, not all of them, but most of them. And it goes back to pornography. Many of these people what happens, just so you're aware of the pattern in practice, there are young women who are kidnapped from abroad who are smuggled into this country. They are then typically, what happens is you have um, Asian mafia outlets in the Northwest that transfer these girls to the Southeast to places within 30 minutes of a military base. There's a huge report uh, by the Clinton administration Justice Department on this pattern of trafficking. They are released in the Southeast within 30 minutes of a uh, military installation uh, that when customers build up relationships with them, they can often also buy drugs within these facilities. Uh, the girls prostitute themselves and the money is then flowed back to the Northwest where it's then transmitted back to Asia. The The girls are told that their families will be killed if if they say anything. Ultimately, if they're good girls, they can transfer into other industries. There are a number of industries out there uh, that that are involved, uh, occasionally nail salons, restaurants, everything like that. Uh, When they get comfortable, they've been groomed so successfully, essentially they've been brainwashed into this. They then transfer out of just being prostitutes into managing other prostitutes. And the ultimate step is pornography. Many of these people wind up in pornography increasingly, and here's the thing, increasingly it's not Asian girls or Eastern European girls trafficked into this country. It's American girls who are kidnapped or groomed, sometimes by relatives. I interviewed a woman who had been rescued from human trafficking and it was her father. Her father trafficked her. She is in pornography that to this day circulates on the internet. And her father did that to her. She was groomed into it and pressured into it. And I missed the date. Normally I try to focus on it, but there's been so much going on these last couple of weeks and it, I, it totally slipped me by. 
that a lot of churches rally against human trafficking. And what's so interesting is there are people in the media now who have pushed back on this narrative that really it's not a big deal, really it's not a thing, really it's just these churches, they're trying to to, to gear people up and, and pornography is really not that bad. And it is amazing to watch the, the, the forces of evil, and they really are forces of evil, try to tell you that what you know to be true isn't true, to gaslight you on the subject. And it happens more and more in this country. And I'm telling you, let's go back to the beginning of this conversation. Young men whose fathers engage with them on the subject are the ones who avoid it. And dads, you matter. It doesn't matter whether you have custody of your child regularly or not. What matters is you're talking to your son about this and your daughter about this, believe it or not because it's increasingly a problem with young girls. And increasingly through the internet, through social media influencers and the like, young girls get more and more comfortable with this behavior, with pornography, with dabbling into it. And you can see whole industries existing almost to groom young women into wanting to submit to it and pretend it's a consensual act. And you've got media industry outlets out there who who try to claim that this is all consensual, consensual and it's all about women's empowerment. You've got part of the feminist movement that is fully on board pornography. It used to be in the 1980s, feminists and Christians were aligned together against it. And now you've got these this latest wave of feminists who actually think it's about women's empowerment, degrading yourself for others but they don't see it that way. And so I just, I, I, it's my show. If you don't like it, you can change the channel. But it's an important topic. And I'm more and more mindful. My, my son is, he'll be 12 in December. It's stuff I've got to do. I've got to engage with him on. The data is there to show engagement actually works. And the data is actually there to show that by failing to engage, you yourself are playing a role in human trafficking. If you want to stop human trafficking, ending the consumption of pornography is actually one of the key steps to getting rid of human trafficking. And the way to end use of consumption of dabbling with pornography is to engage with your kids and make sure your kids understand what's actually happening. That many of these women are forced against their will or they are groomed or they are addicted to drugs and they are doing this for for money so that they can buy drugs or they're doing it to placate other people in abusive situations and that a lot of them will come out and say that they're volunteering and and it, this is all about empowerment and in fact it's not. And in fact the suicide rate becomes very high, the mental instability issue becomes very high. There are real problems out there. The glorification of this stuff is something we see in a fallen world and in an increasingly fallen secular society that is turned away from the things of God and we see a society that wants quick access to these things and pleasure and they have rolled this all into one big bag of, of, of bad stuff that contributes to human trafficking. And the more you engage with your kids and tell your kids that this is wrong and here's why, the more likely you are to be able to not just fight human trafficking, but in these problems that then impact your ability and your kids' abilities to have meaningful relationships with others long-term. So parents, you've got to engage. Let's have a moment of, for, for pet peeve in the area of grievances, shall we? Um, um, y'all know my position on the virus. I, I take it seriously. I think a lot of people don't take it seriously who should. 
I think there are a lot of people who think it's a, an overblown media conspiracy to harm the president, to harm the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and they shouldn't. I know now six people, some of them I would consider family, some of them friends who have died. Herman Cain died of complications from the virus. It's amazing to watch people try to revise Herman's death and say, well, he had, he had cancer or whatnot. Uh, Herman died because of complications due to COVID-19. Let's let's not dance around that fact. This isn't in dispute with his his family or doctors. Um, the the amount of energy people are spending into revising this stuff is is ridiculous to me. Let's be truthful and honest with the data, but that extends to both sides. You know my feeling on masks. You know my feeling on the virus. I got to tell you something else. I, I feel very strongly about that. There are ridiculous fear mongers on the left right now who really hate that you might exercise individual responsibility. Remember the girl who wrote the overwrought piece on Brian Kemp and his handling of the virus and, and that it was going to be George's experiment in human sacrifice? Well, none of the things she predicted bore out. None of them came true until our season of protests where everyone on the left denied that the protesters had anything to do with it. Uh, Georgia reopened and two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later, we did not see a huge spike in the virus. We only saw huge spikes in the virus uh, in the middle of June, two weeks after the protests in Atlanta and Memorial Day partiers on boats. Had nothing to do with the governor reopening, had to do with people being irresponsible. Well, she's back now to condemn George and Governor's handling, Governor Kemp's handling of this stuff. Uh, and she, she takes out of it the individual equation. And I want you guys to be mindful of something moving forward with the media because this is becoming a huge pet peeve of mine. And it has to do with uh, intersectionalism and um, critical theory which is all Marxist thought. It, it has to do with the relationships of power and it, it attempts to pull individualism out of the equation and make it a power and class struggle. And you're seeing this in a lot of the reporting of COVID-19 now where it's not about individuals behaving badly. It's about power structures. We all have individual responsibility and we all have the right to make individual choices. And some parts of the country are choosing to go different routes and the media is attacking them for failing to go along with what the media wants. We should actually be cheering on 50 individual approaches in the nation. We should be cheering on the various states experimenting with different ways to reopen their economies or locking down. But instead, what we get are these overwrought, um, overwrought criticisms from people on the left for you daring to exercise individual choice. Do I think you should take it seriously? Yes. Do I think you should take precautions? Yes. If not for yourself, for your neighbor. It's not just about you. It's not just about your kids. It's about the kids your kids will be going to school with. It's about the idiots out there who send their kid to school masking symptoms because they want to go to work or they just don't want their kids at home and they wind up getting other people sick with the cold or the flu and now they can do it with COVID-19, which could transmit a far more deadly virus to grandparents or parents. But let's also be willing to say on the left, there's a lot of fear mongering out there and a lot of condemnation for you as an individual exercising your individual decision making skills when they want you dictated to and bullied to. And I wish they would cut that out as well. Now that's a parking spot. 
Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Now that's a parking spot. Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.